UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty turns, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Hey guys, uh, welcome back to the uh, Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have a really fascinating guest for with you, me today. I have with me Ron Rademacher from michiganbackroads.com. Now, he's done extensive research on mysteries that surround his area in Michigan. And today, we're going to be getting into this amazing copper mystery that took place where they found this Macintosh stone and it has ancient writings on it and 500,000 pounds of copper disappeared. What I'm going to do now, uh, before I introduce Ron, is I'm going to do a screen share and uh, so you guys can see what we're talking about. Ron, can you see my screen now? Uh, Yep, there we are. Yep, got it. Okay, we're we're on. And uh, Ron, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm happy, healthy, feel great. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is awesome. I, I mean, this is just a pre-record, so I can edit later if I need to. But um, th- this is this is a really interesting mystery. How did you stumble upon this whole mystery? Because it seems like you get in. You have a number of books out that you've written, right? But on on Michigan uh, mysteries, but this one's pretty special, right? This one is special, and I, I do have a number of books out. And, of course, they can go to the website. We'll do the commercial now. Uh, I do have six books currently in print. This one comes from Oddities and Rarities, and it's a book I wrote about these strange things that are in Michigan that are all real. Uh, and it wasn't until I'd begun to really research the copper mystery uh, that I figured out a way to connect them to the Macintosh stone, which is one of the strangest artifacts that's ever been found here. Uh, and the things that I write about, just so that people know, everything that I write about is real. I've actually seen each of these things with my own eyes. And you can go and I give directions. This is where you go to see the Macintosh stone. This is what you're going to find. So I stumbled across the idea of the about the copper. Uh, by I picked up a book by a guy named Fred Ridholm, who wrote this book back in the 1970s. He was a school teacher. And uh, he was a, a he, he liked to travel around, so he traveled around the Keweenaw Peninsula. Uh, this is a, a little peninsula that sticks out over out into Lake Superior in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And north and west of that is Isle Royal, which is a national park now. And he went out, and he had heard that there were thousands of of of, uh, of my, pit mines out there, thousands. So he went and looked, and sure enough, on Isle Royal alone, there are about four thousand pit mines that are five to 30 feet deep. And he, as he looked at this, then he started thinking, well, what was dug out of here? He checked it out. Uh, Copper was taken. And he thought, where did all this copper go? And from that, he did his research. And when I ran across his research, I started doing my own. And that's how this copper country mystery uh, section came up. 
You, you know what's so interesting? Like if you look at uh, like people who study like the Anunnaki mystery, which I'm sure you've heard of before doing this kind of work, like um, they 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 found the uh, the, the ancient mines in, in Africa as well, where supposedly someone was digging for gold thousands of years ago as well so like you know a lot of people like try to discredit Sitchin and I'm not I'm not a Sitchinite or anything but they did find the gold mine supposedly that somebody was supposedly digging for gold thousands of years ago you know um so this mystery that this could have happened that I think what what we're going to get to was that you know the ancient people were much more connected I guess and uh yeah, I mean, this is amazing. Why, why do you think they were? Why do you think they were doing all that copper? What, what do you What do you think it was for? Well, uh, it could only be one thing, and and here's how this works out. So, it was five hundred. They they figured out that there are five hundred thousand tons of copper taken from these mines, and and that and they didn't get all of it. This all stopped about 1250 BC, which is a very important date that this mining activity stopped. It had begun 3,000 years before that, and it suddenly stopped. And we'll, we'll show, I have a picture here I'll show you of a, a 6,000 pound piece of copper that was simply abandoned. Uh, so, is yeah, there it is right, right there. The yeah, is that you standing next to the float copper? Yeah, that's me. That's when I was fatter uh, and cuter. I'm older and skinnier now. But above, right above that is the copper mass weighing 6,000 pounds. That is a picture of a piece of copper that was found in one of the mines on uh, uh, Isle Royal. And it was simply abandoned there. And what's important is that it's sitting on a, uh, a cradle of uh, oak. That's what they're going to lift it out with using pulleys and, and fulcrums. So here's what we think happened. What was going on between... Uh, 1250 BC and 3000 years before was the bronze age. So we had had, we'd had primitive times. Then we had the stone age where people use stone tools and stone points for their weapons and clubs. Then someone figured out how to combine tin, which you could get from England and the Cornwall, uh, uh, you know, the uh, tin mines, they're pure tin. And if you could figure out a way to combine tin with copper, you got bronze. And bronze was an incredibly lightweight, strong metal that had never been known before. But what was not well known at the time was smelting. We didn't, people didn't really know how to smelt ores. Just let me explain what smelting is. So if you want to get iron ore, if you have a piece of iron ore, it's got stone and it's got impurities and there's iron in there. And you've got to subject it to tremendous heat to melt the iron out, to get rid of the impurities. That's smelting. Almost all the copper on the world is like that. Uh, there, there are copper mines in Cyprus that uh, you know supplied some of the, the copper for the uh, Bronze Age. But the copper that comes from the Keweenaw Peninsula and Isle Royal is the purest copper in the world. It's 99.9% pure. Uh, we call that its DNA. It's been tested all over the world. It's easily recognizable. This is the only place it comes from. So if you're a, a Roman emperor or you're an Egyptian pharaoh and it's the Bronze Age and you need to upgrade your weapons and your armies and your tools, you need bronze. And the only place to get vast amounts of the copper that you could readily mix with pure tin was from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Well, here's what I was wondering, Ron. How do you think they 
they found out about the um the new world or so to say because this was way before columbus like do you think people had been making voyages here for thousands of years like and and it was a known trading place I, I do think so. And even though I don't uh, touch on it in this particular uh, web page or in the chapter I'm writing about this for a new book, <clears throat> there was a lot of trade going on across the world. So if we if we look over to the, the Middle East, uh, the Mediterranean, uh, the, the people were trading with India and they were trading with China. And uh, because the North, where the Europeans were, was still pretty, a little bit further behind. They're still in the coal age. Uh, they wouldn't come out of this until uh, after the Iron Age got here. But there's a lot of evidence to prove that the Chinese made it to California and to the West Coast of, of Canada. And so the Western world, the Western Hemisphere was, was known. It was not a mystery. These people knew that it was there, and they were sending explorers. And there's a lot of physical evidence, which we can get into, that shows that they were actually here. Uh, and it's been proven that the even the Vikings, one thousand uh, in one thousand A.D., had a uh, an outpost in Nova Scotia, five hundred years before Columbus got here. That's that's so that's so awesome. So you, a couple of things you thought you told me before the show we were talking. You got to excuse me, my voice is <clears throat> still bad. I was sick, but uh, they said that um that you said that it might've been the Phoenicians that you thought that might that was coming here. And then I was thinking, well, then why did, why did the, um, the, the, the people in charge or, you know, like whoever it is make such a big deal of Columbus coming here? Like, that's, that's a are, you really ask, are you really asking me that question? <laughs> no, I, I have an answer for that question. I just very rarely anybody ever asked that question. And the, the, it is because of manifest destiny. It was very important when the, the when the, the the country was being settled, uh, and I, I happen to be a white guy, so I'm not getting down on people. But it was very important uh, that uh, this could be shown to be a, an empty, primitive place, and so if you came here, you could just take what you wanted because there was nobody here who owned anything. The ownership was a you know was something that. The Mediterraneans knew, the Europeans knew, Africans knew, they knew about ownership. So in order to conquer an entire hemisphere without being accused of uh, genocide or slaughter, you had to say that there was nobody there except savages. And that was what was done. And it was called manifest destiny. So you could just take it. Uh, and that's why, so if, it, when this was going on, it was it was uh, anathema to anybody to say that anyone had been here before Columbus. Columbus discovered the New World, and it was just a primitive place that no one had ever been to before. And so, all of the evidence that is that exists, and there is a lot of it, that uh, Africans, Phoenicians, uh, the uh, Chinese had been coming to this hemisphere for centuries. All that was suppressed, so that the the uh the europeans could say well we discovered it and so we can just take it and these people that live there they're you know they're subhumans they're just savages it, it was a manifest destiny it was just a, an excuse that we could just take it oh wow wow so that's i mean that's pretty harsh but it, that's actually what that's the reason why pr there's a whole uh, there are people who call uh anything after before columbus they this call all conspiracy theories 
that, that no one was here ever visited here before Columbus. And so when they got here, the people who were here were living a very primitive way. And so they couldn't be civilized and they couldn't have been exposed to any civilized cultures or they would have changed. It's basically that kind of an idea. It's, it seems which, which I'm getting a lot of trouble for this. I can tell this, this gets into a, a different uh, a kind of subject, but it seems like all the, 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 the natural tribes around the world, like wanted to live, didn't want to live in, in an industrious kind of way. Like they wanted to live more with the earth and, you know, honestly kind of follow in what they had been taught by what they called the star people or their gods. Like, um, you know, I, I think they, you know, and whatchamacallit, came to conquer uh, the Aztecs, they thought that it was Quetzal, the return of Quetzalcoatl, which is interesting because it makes me think that was there one point when the gods really walked amongst men, you know, or, or was it, were they archetypes? You know, it's so hard to figure out because well, it, it makes me think that if they, if that's just a story that was made up, that the Aztecs thought that the Spanish, uh, I think it was Pizarro, they thought Pizarro was, uh, was it Pizarro? There was Columbus, Pizarro, and uh, there was three of them that invaded the whole United States and Southern Amer- South America coast. Like they did, they took the Incan land, they took the Aztec, the Mayan, and they took up here and Columbus took, you know, uh, some, I think he started off where he was in like Haiti of it. And then he took all their gold and then he eventually made his way up here. But I mean, it was a whole Spanish conquest that just, just totally annihilated so many people. And, uh, yeah, right. And this is all fact, right? Yeah, the, mostly. That's mostly fact. Yeah, the the Spaniards uh, probably did the most damage. Um, they they got here after Columbus. You know, Columbus gets a bad rap. Columbus uh, was an explorer who wanted to prove that the world was round, and he was trying to find India, a, a way to get to India and China for the spices. So he, what he, you know, he's the old joke about Columbus is, um, he, you know, that's why he called them Indians when he got here, because he thought he was in India on an island. It happened to be um, uh, one of the Caribbean islands. So they say, you know, Columbus didn't know where he was going. Uh, when he got there, he didn't know where he was. And when he got back, he didn't know where he'd been. But the, uh, the Spaniards are the ones who came and once, once Columbus had found it, of course, everybody then, this was empire building. All right. At this time in human history, everybody was building empires and Columbus was sent by the Portuguese. He was Portuguese. He was sent by Isabel, the queen of Spain. And so anything that he found, Spain claimed. And so when, while Columbus was still on uh, the island, uh, America, America Vespucci discovered the mainland, which he hit uh, Brazil and Spain claimed that. And that's how this, the uh, conquistadors managed to get to South America. And yes, they wiped out the Inca, they wiped out the Aztecs, and, and they were all strictly, strictly after treasure, gold. That's what they were after. And so, yeah. uh, it, you know, and so everybody was in on the act. I mean, uh, they were there, the Spaniards were there. Uh, they, they're the ones who destroyed all but four of the, uh, um, uh, the books that were written by the Maya. Uh, because they were the work of the devil. This also happened with all kinds of carvings and writings in North America. And up here, of course, the Spaniards were here, Spanish-American War, uh, California, Texas, uh, then the French. So everybody was trying to grab a part of the new world because the new world was everybody's for the taking because there were no civilized people there. 
they, they was... had to have known though like you said like they 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 you said columbus said that he thought that he 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 was looking for india but do you think he they said that and they actually knew they were coming here and they were going to plunder it for its gold because they took out the whole coast they took out all america south america i mean it was like it was like strategically planned and like and and, and not to get conspiratorial but like i said uh i think the aztecs thought that pizarro was quetzalcoatl right or, or that that's what yeah, we're told yeah no no that you're you're correct on that they the uh, the legend was quetzalcoatl was was uh, uh fair-haired and fair-skinned and the, the the legend was that he would come back and so when the spaniards showed up and they were you know, Hispanics, they were fair skinned when they showed up. Um, these people thought this is the second coming. And they came on these gigantic ships with these huge sails. that looked like something coming out of space on wings. You know, they'd never seen anything this big. And so, yeah, they welcomed, uh, these Spanish, uh, invade or these Spanish explorers invaders because they did think that they could be gods. And that allowed, you know, very tiny groups of men, 30 or 40 men, to conquer thousands and uh the uh, spaniards saw, saw no reason to correct their error in, in judgment they just went along with yeah we're gods and we're taking all this gold you got here do you think the gods could have actually been maybe just advanced humans at one point they, like because you hear all the stories of noah and and that, that that the anunnaki helped spread civilization after the flood and you you, you hear every every culture has a, a a tale with star people at least that you know the native americans do the aborigines in australia um you know i could probably go all over the world and it seems like the africans they they have a everybody has a tale of meeting with star people i mean what are your thoughts on that 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 phrase of what i just said and like or do you think that this could have just been advanced humans kind of setting up civilizations in the past? And I know this is off topic, but you're kind of a historian. So I figured I would pick your, pick your brain on it. Well, no, this, this is fine. We can go off topic. That means you'll have to have me back to finish it. <laughs> you know, so no, uh, th- th- this is a, an interesting question. Uh, and I don't, I'm not really sure about whether they were advanced humans or whether they were visitors from another planet or, uh, I, I'm not sure how that plays out. What I am very sure of is that before 9,000, 10,000 years ago, a catastrophic event happened on this planet, which wiped out civilizations that were in existence at that time. I'm, I'm totally convinced that this happened. Whether it was too. a polar flip or uh, whether it was a meteor strike, which whatever it was, it was, it was a, uh, a civilization and life ending event. And the few people that survived, because people always survive. I mean, there's always somebody left over the people who survived as they sat around rebuilding and you know, re- remembering how to make fire and how to hunt. And they would tell their children the stories about in the past, after two generations or three generations, you'll know this in your own family. The stories about your great-grandfather, you know, are exaggerated. And that's only two generations away. So my belief is that the stories, being a storyteller and, and working a lot of, in uh, oral tradition, oral storytelling tradition, stories get changed very quickly and get distorted. So I think that the stories about gods and the stories about visitors with great powers are probably true. But these are people, it's just like this. If I... I'll give you an example that, that actually demonstrates this in modern times. During World War II, uh, the United States and the Allies were involved in a, 
a, a war with Japan that was taking place in the Pacific Ocean. And it was a seaborne and airborne war. And the United States and the Allies went to deserted, which they thought were uninhabited islands, and built airstrips so they could hop from one island to the next. Well, some of these islands were inhabited by primitive peoples who had never seen an airplane, had never seen a white person. And when the war was over, the Americans and all these advanced people left. Well, what these advanced people had brought with them was a way of life where they didn't have to work and they had cargo. They would open up their, their space machines, their air machines, and there would be food and everything you could possibly need with no work. And when they left, they took all that with them. And years later, 10, 20 years later, people went back and these islanders had built fake airstrips and had built airplanes out of wood to try to coax the gods from the skies to come back. One one generation, you can look this up. One generation was all it took for, because they, the people on the island never really knew that these were other humans and that they were involved in a war with other people. They were just all of a sudden they showed up and they had great wealth and they had magic. They could go out at night and take a a, a little thing out of their hand and hit, flick a switch and it would produce light. It's called a flashlight. Imagine. (laughs) They had never seen anything like this. And then for some reason, some, and the people thought maybe they had offended the gods and the gods all left and never came back. And, uh, uh, not archaeologists, but what are the guys who study people? Uh, what are those people, those scientists? Sociologists. Sociologists, or there's another word. But anyway, so when people went back to some of these islands years, years later, looking for oil or looking for rubber, whatever they were looking for, they found these airstrips with, with airplanes made out of, of bamboo and people sitting there looking at the sky, waiting for the gods to come back. So all it would have taken was whatever this catastrophe was that happened 10 or 12,000 years ago, all it would have taken was for one or two survivors to have some kind of a magical thing, like a flashlight, that when its batteries died, it stopped working, and the magic was lost, and the legends began, and everybody was waiting for the gods to come back. I I think it's more something like that, unless it actually actually was God. It might have actually been God, so... It could it could have been we never we never know I, I scrolled down your page I I thought this was interesting we could talk about this this petroglyph of yeah. a sailing ship um, yeah. who made this do you think like what do you think of- well all right so this is uh you're looking here at I'm going to describe what this actually is because the Macintosh stone actually has this image on it too what you're looking at here is a square rigged sailing ship and these were double hulled. And then it had a square sail. Now, this is carved on a rock just outside of Copper Harbor at the tip of um, the Keweenaw Peninsula. I don't know who carved it, and I have not been able to find out. This was found by a – here's what happened with this. And there are other carvings near this that I didn't put up here. There are other symbols carved on the cliffs near this object. But this is the interesting one because this is actually – this ship is identical to the ships that the Minoans were sailing, and these ships were capable of going up and down the entire Mediterranean. So this kind of ship could have made it over here. This could have been the kind that came over for the copper. Uh, the, so the, the, uh, the, the thing about this is this was discovered around 1970 by a guy who was out deer hunting, and he told a few people about it, and 
but he kind of kept it secret because, you know, we don't want these things to get damaged. Well, somehow or another, the word got out and people started coming to this and taking selfies. And they were actually taking these lines and putting uh, chalk in them to make them blue so it would show up better. And they ruined this. So we cannot, we don't know how old it actually is because we couldn't get in there and study the algae and all the things growing here before it was damaged. Uh, and so we don't really know. And so now because of that, some people say, well, the whole thing is just a fake. Uh, and they, they claim that there's a nearby petroglyph just like this of a bear, which there is. I didn't put it up here either. I can, I can do it some other time. And the bear is obviously made with uh, a modern tool. It's nothing crude like this. You can see this. These lines are uneven. This was chiseled. Uh, this was took a lot of work to produce this thing. The bear petroglyph is uh, a continuous line. And uh, it's very clearly done with a, a Dremel or some tool like that. So because it's near this, people say this is also a fake. Well, no, I, I, I don't think it's a fake. I think that they, they, maybe they were trying to uh, preserve their history or at least show what happened. So in the future, so when people like us come along and the other shows that you do, like researchers, that maybe we could put something together and, 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 and get people thinking that, yeah, it seems like uh, there are cataclysms that happen on this earth. And I think that's what, when Graham Hancock says we're a species with amnesia, that's why, because you know we've lost our history right we've lost every uh, all our history it seems yeah like. i yeah I, I agree with that I, I and graham hancock is an interesting guy but yeah i agree with with some of his ideas that you know twenty five thousand years ago 20 we have no idea what was going on there now some people say that this was carved that some people when, when you find these petroglyphs and i've got lots of petroglyphs in my files, I, I'm one of the few people who's actually made it up onto the burnt bluffs and photographed the uh, the prehistoric rock paintings that are there. And so people will say that the people who carved these were carving what they saw. Uh, when when you see these rock paintings in Australia and Native American Hopi paintings, and look, people look like they're in spacesuits and things. People will, researchers will say, well, people are painting what they saw. And they, so with this, people are saying people were carving what they saw. Well, that may be. Uh, I would say that this was not carved by someone who saw this. I would say this was carved by someone who had been on one of these and drew a picture for the people that they were dealing with there saying, oh, well, you guys have these canoes and these boats. This is what we use and drew it for them. And then someone carved that into this rock. That's the other, or um, or this is a this is a hoax. Well, it can only be one or the other because. But my research shows that these kinds of vessels never made it to Lake Superior. They just never got there. There and there was no reason for them to get there to remove all this copper. Uh, you didn't have to take ocean-going vessels through the St. Lawrence Seaway or up the Mississippi River and drag them across all kinds of rapids and everything and get them into the Great Lakes and then sail them up to uh, Lake Superior to load them up with copper and then turn around and do the whole thing again. You didn't have to do that. Uh, so my, my theory, my contention that I present to people is, yes, the copper was removed, and I can show you how it was done. But it wasn't done with these kinds of boats. These were never here. And one of the icky parts of this whole thing uh, that always comes up is out at Isle Royal and along the Keweenaw Peninsula, 
there are there's no evidence of vast dock works and places for big ships to dock and be and be anchored for uh, weeks at a time and there's no huge areas uh, where people miners set up towns so they could mine for thousands of years none of that is there and the reason it's not there is because it never had to be these boats never got here and because the mining uh uh, season uh, in that part of Michigan only lasts for about a hundred days before winter sets in again. All the, uh, the the people who were mining it were using temporary teepees and or uh, bark, uh, uh, you know, bark huts, which the Native Americans were good at building, and they rebuilt them every spring. And then when they move on to their hunting grounds, they come back to where they live and they just repair them and live in them again. It was a, a nomadic way of life, following the season. So, Do you think the uh, the uh, the ancient people were depending on the stars to, to figure out when they could come and mine, like to know it? Because obviously they didn't have calendars or anything like, or maybe they did have calendars. We don't know. But um, how would they know when would be a good time to come and mine? And then also these seem like basic questions, but they're real interesting. Like how would they get all that copper on the ships? Wouldn't that sink the ship because it would be so heavy? So two questions there. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's, no, those are excellent questions. So the timing of it, uh, it's just like, uh, I, I don't know if you fish or if you golf or if you're a gardener, but when yeah. it starts getting, you know, around this, in where I live, this is the, the North part of uh, North America. We know when spring gets here and when spring starts getting here, we know we got to plow and start planting. I mean, because you grow up with it. And so, and your parents grew up with it and your grandparents grew up with it. So maritime uh, nations like the Phoenicians and like the Vikings, people like this who spent their, t- their lives, I mean, England is an island and conquered 25% of the planet at one time. They know when the winds are going to be blowing good and they know when winter's coming and you got to get off the, the water. So, you know, I don't see that part as being, uh, as uh, being a big mystery. Um, what was the other half of the question? Uh, how they got all the copper on the ships so the oh. ships didn't like sink. Yeah. So this is, yeah, this is a, this is really good. So people said, well, you know, they had to bring these ocean going ships because, you know, they're going to move this copper and how could they do it? So down the, the page away is a picture of a canoe, uh, which was found. Uh, right yeah. There, that, that canoe right there, that was found near waters meet in the 1950s. This object um, is uh, 32 feet long. It's about a yard wide. The sides are an inch and a half thick and it, um, uh, it could hold a cargo. It was, it's from one tree trunk, by the way, and it could hold a cargo of over 4,000 pounds. Wow. So here, and, and these are still in use, by the way, up to 80 feet long on the Amazon river, these types of canoes. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. You can, you can Google that up and you can see uh, these types of canoes made out of one tree trunk. So I didn't have the math on this, but my buddy Garrett Cole out on Beaver Island is a you know he he knows his math. So I sent this picture to him and I gave him the dimension. I said, "How much cargo could this thing haul?" And my question was, if I had one of these canoes, could I put copper in it from Isle Royale and go to the Keweenaw Peninsula? How long would it take me? So he did the math and he came back and he said, "This will hold four thousand pounds." Now here's the interesting part of this. Pure copper, like they were getting from this area, a 12-inch cube, it's one foot on a side, that cube would weigh 580 pounds. It's very small. So you could easily fit four of them in this canoe with three guys and 
all their gear and a teepee. How do no you problem. think they're lifting it though? Like, I mean, like that's a, that's a, I mean, like, do you think they use some kind of wedges and like, you know, pick up the, the copper use, or pick up the, the canoe, <laughs> pick up the either one. Like, yeah. Like we, do you ever see people when they move natural stones for landscaping, they'll use digging bars. I was thinking maybe they were using some kind of digging bar. I don't know. Like w- 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 it would have to. Uh, be- no, no, no. It's, it's far simpler than that. Uh, so they didn't make these, uh, they didn't put copper into cubes. They made it in, they hammered it out flat. Uh, and these were called ox hides because they kind of had little ears on each corner. So they looked like a, a, a cow hide or an ox hide laying flat. They hammered them flat and they would weigh between 30 and 50 kilograms. Uh, and two men could easily carry one of these. Yeah. Four men could, you could, so you could, and they were flat, so you could stack them. In fact, they were used. There's one was found in the Mediterranean Sea just a few years ago. A shipwreck was found. And in the hull, down in the bottom, were stacks of these copper ox hides that they were actually using as ballast. So a, a boat like this, now just, just follow along here. So here's how this was actually done. So I've got a bunch of Native Americans uh, that I've that have gone out to Keweenaw to the Isle Royal to do the mining, and they did it with stone hammers and they dug because they're just digging pure copper. And some of it was just laying there, like we have a picture we can go back to in a minute of a piece that was found in uh, Lake Superior in the 1970s. It weighs uh, 17 tons, and it was just laying there on the bottom of the water. That one right there. This one right that's, here. That's, that's pure copper. copper. That's pure copper. And this wow. was laying all over the place. There was a piece that was in the Smithsonian Institute for years that weighed 3,000 pounds that was sitting on the, on the bank of a river. And the Native Americans went and, and showed the explorers in the 1800s where it was because the demand fell off until the 1800s. But here's how it was done. I'm going to explain to you exactly how this mining operation worked and how it was gotten from Michigan to uh, Europe. So what would happen? So I've got a hundred of these canoes, all right? A hundred of these 30 foot canoes. So we go over, a bunch of guys go over to Isle Royal and they're there for the summer, 90 days. Cause winter's coming. You don't, nobody lives out there. Nobody ever lived out there uh, in those days. So they go over and they mine. And what's happening is they're bringing the copper out. They're cutting it down to size. They're putting it in canoes and canoes are leaving with an outrigger on them, sometimes a sail. And they're either going to Canada, which is only 15 miles away, or they're going south to the Keweenaw Peninsula, which is 50 miles, which takes 12, about 10 to 12 hours. You could do it. I mean, the days are long enough. And if you had an outrigger, and so each one of them would have a ton, you know, 1,000 pounds, 2,000 pounds of copper in it, four of these cubes hammered into ox, uh, ox hides. So if I have a hundred of these canoes, and I make the trip twice a week, I'm moving hundreds of tons of copper every summer. Then it's moved from there, either down the, and onto the Ontonaga River, where you only have two portages, and you're on the Mississippi, and you put it on barges, and it floats down to the Gulf of Mexico, where the seagoing ships are waiting. Or they take it over to Canada, and it's moved across land, and there are, there's a huge petroglyph up in Petersburg, uh, Canada, which has been preserved, which has a description of this actual activity taking place from the 13, uh, 1300s BC. And it goes over to the Atlantic to Nova Scotia, or these, these, uh, uh, these canoes take it down to other staging points on the Great Lakes, and it's moved down the Great Lakes and up the St. Lawrence Seaway to the Atlantic coast. 
Now, as that's happening, the boats are not necessarily waiting there to pick it up. This is a so you have a season where it's being mined and moved, and then another season where it's being mined and moved. And as it begins to get to the coasts, it's stored there. And it's stored at other places as well. So it can be transferred to the appropriate type of vessel to move it on the type of water you're going to be on. You know, if you're going to go down Lake Michigan to near Chicago, there's a river system there you can enter, and it takes you right to the Mississippi. So you didn't have to go up the St. Lawrence Seaway, but we do know that it was done both ways. So these canoes never left the Great Lakes. They were just moved, used to move it from the mines to a staging area or it was put on more appropriate vessels and moved again and then put on seagoing vessels which sailed across the oceans. Now, here, let me say one other thing about sailing across the oceans, just so you know. If you come out of the, um, the uh, Mediterranean, into the Atlantic, the Gulf, uh, the Gulf Stream is there, and you can ride that. And they've actually done it. They threw a barrel in the water, and it floats. It the, the Gulf Stream will take it right across the Atlantic to Brazil. Wow! So you you just go across that way. Then the Gulf Stream turns north and goes up along the North American coast, and then turns back east and comes back over to Northern Europe. So you could act. That's how it was done. They could sail by just following the Gulf Stream and go up. And so they would come, they would pick up the copper, they would go, that group of ships might take a year and a half to do it. And so you had fleets of ships and fleets of canoes moving these oars over. This was happening over thousands of years, not just for a hundred or so. The the Bronze Age lasted for about 3,000 years. And that's the process that was done. So that's the reason. And then, so at Isle Royal, then winter would come. Well, the miners would leave and go back home to be with their families. And they would just put the teepees down and they would paddle their own canoes back. So you didn't have to have docks and you didn't have to have big cities because these were people who were living in temporary shelters that were used to, um, that, that were used according to the season that they were in. I was reading right here. It says records suggest that both the Phoenicians and the Vikings arrived on the east coast of the Americas before and during the Bronze Age. The Phoenicians dominated sea trade during the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean region produced vast amounts of bronze eventually. So we think it was the Vikings and the Phoenicians then. Definitely. Well, I, I, I don't think the Vikings had anything to do with necessarily with the copper. Uh, there, there are the, the, They may have used some of it, but the people who were after it were the, the Phoenicians because they were supplying uh, the arms makers. There was one order, uh, and this is all this is all literally carved in stone. There was an order placed by one Roman emperor uh, for bronze armor and weapons for uh, an, a, a set a group of Roman legions he had that numbered one hundred thousand men. Wow! That's one hundred thousand helmets, one hundred thousand shields, one hundred thousand chest armors, one hundred thousand swords, spear tips all made of bronze and there's no there's no source of copper in the old world sufficient to even supply that order let alone and this was one guy yeah and i was going to say these this was around the times of uh, alexander the great as well right the, the whole bronze age yeah exactly exactly so, so we do they, have a, the only reason i brought the vikings up is to demonstrate that the vikings did get here and they're you know at point of shame they're they're uh that uh, that community has been established. That is a Viking community. It's on the coast of Nova Scotia. It was founded around 1000 BC. 
Uh, and so if you sail from Scandinavia and you want to get to the New World, you go from there to the Hebrides Islands north of England, to Svalbard, to Iceland, to Greenland, to Nova Scotia. In that, so you've got all these points to stop. In that journey, you're never out of sight of land for more than two days. Wow. So it's, it's entirely, I mean, it's a very simple process for them. Uh, the, the other way, going from Africa, North Africa, the Mediterranean, over to Brazil and then sailing up, was really just a matter of getting out of the, the Mediterranean Sea and turning south along the African coast and picking up the Gulf Stream and sailing across to Brazil. And this copper that we was mined up here uh, has a very specific DNA. It's 99.9% pure. There's nothing like it anywhere else on the planet. And this copper has been found all the way down the Mississippi River, down at Poverty Point, where there was a huge uh, uh, furnace works, all along the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. And it's also been found in the Mediterranean. So this copper did move. Uh, there's just a matter of some people say, well, it couldn't have been done on this scale because nobody was trading here and there was no activity this sophisticated before Columbus, back to the old, you know, pre-Columbian thing. Yeah. Now, this Macintosh stone, which was yeah. found, it says on the Quinoa, Quinoa, Quinoa how do you pronounce it? Quinoa. Quinoa shoreline. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the Macintosh stone? What's on it? Is that Phoenician writing on there? Uh, so I'll tell you what this is. And this is a, this is a, now this still exists, by the way, all these, uh, all of these artifacts exist. This stone, uh, it's called the Macintosh stone. It's owned by Charlie Macintosh. He runs an inn in Nama, Michigan. If you go there and ask him, he will show you this. Uh, this stone is small. This is about the size of a half dollar. So the top picture is, has three men on it. I don't know how well you can see this, but the center has a man, and the top of it is his head, and he's facing to the right, and as you can see his hairline, and then below him is his shield, and then below him are his legs. He's kneeling. This man is kneeling, and he has like a sword haft uh, in front of his face. Uh, to his right is another man who has his arms raised, in a, in a. he's facing the guy in the center, and he has a halo, and he has his arms raised in a, a an attitude of prayer or blessing, and he's sitting on a throne. His his shins are there. So we have those two guys, and then on the left, it's much more difficult to see in this picture. But there's another man there, and he's kneeling uh, behind the guy in the center, and he's holding like a, a flag or a staff of some kind, all like he was a squire. So that's what's that was. And there's the, I, I that, was looking right here. Like, what's, what, do you see where my mouse pointer is? Yeah, where I'm circling right here. This looks like a halo. serpent type being. Do you so see that's this? The, well, that's and we think that that's a halo. That's a halo of a man to indicate that this is a priest or a divinity. And if you move your mouse over to the left of that, no, right here. No, no, go back to the what you said was a serpent man. Right here. Yeah, and so just to the left of there, you see the two things sticking straight up. Those are his arms. Oh. he's got his arms like up like if you were going to pray you would put your arms up like that yeah and if you go straight down you'll see another straight up and down thing that's his shin yeah. right below his arm that's, so he's seated this guy i have high res 
I had I had a photographer do a scan on this. I have high res pictures of it. It looks better. like his tongue sticking out. Like if you look like right here, that's why I said it looks like a lizard being because he has like a weird. It looks like that could be his tongue or something. Like, what are your thoughts on the fact that it could be some kind of, you know, chimera or some weird kind of being that we don't know? Let's look at the bottom picture, and then I'll tell you what I think that this this stone actually is. So here, not, this one right here. No, no, go up a little bit. Okay. Well, go down. So that one, go down to the bottom one you're looking at. So you could, that's a close-up of the man's head in the center. So okay. his his hairline is at the top left. You can see a line going straight from left to right, kind of up. That's almost like where his eyes are, and below that's his mouth. And then the lower two thirds of this picture is his shield. This I don't know if you can so see amazing. that. So. So all right, now go back up because I want to show you the other side of the stone. All right, that right there. All right, so on the left, so the stuff in the middle and on the right is indiscernible. We can't tell what it is. And then you have the white banding that goes around the edge indicating this is a sacred stone or is a stone of importance. These were always sought after. But on the left, at the bottom, are two kind of crescents. That is a two-hulled ship. And above it, is what's called a buckla. That, that it looks like a, a bird head almost. It's like a figure eight above the ship. Yeah. When you have and this this these when they appear in combination and there I have pictures of them on uh, glyphs from um, from Denmark and uh, I believe they also appear in Canada. When these two, when the buckla and the ship appear together. That is symbolism. Remember, this was done when people were illiterate, so everything was done with symbolism. That is symbolism that translates as to be thrust upon the waters as in a voyage. So if you look at the the top one where the three men are, if you look at it this way, the man in the middle is is a leader. He's a captain. He's going to lead a voyage. The man on the right is the priest or the king, and he is blessing this man's journey of exploration. I see it. And the man behind on the left is a squire who is an attendant to the man in the middle. And on the other side is the buckler and the ship. So my belief is that what this object was, it was either a magical talisman or it was a MasterCard. What this man, (laughs) you know, so what this man could go to the shoreline. Now he's got his, he's got his stone. He can go to the shoreline and contract for ships, for men, for supplies. All you got to do is show this, no matter how illiterate the person is, they will recognize the symbolism and know that this man has the authority of the church or the king to make these, uh, to make these purchases. Now, this was found 50 feet above Lake Superior on the very tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula. There's no... The, the, how it got there, nobody knows. My belief is that it got there because someone was voyaging there to supervise the mining operation, and their uh, their nitwit uh, clerk dropped the stone while he was over <laughs> having a beer or whatever he was doing and <laughs> lost it. And somehow, uh, Charlie McIntosh, who was out picking agates, picked this up. And he actually owned it for a couple of years before he went out to polish a bag of agus and discovered this. And I'm the only person who's really done any serious research on this object because 
it doesn't fit in with anybody's narrative. But if you look at the, the symbolism here, these uh, people and the symbols that are being used are very much Mediterranean or European. They're not Native American. Uh, they're not Chinese. You know, you don't ha- knights were from Northern Europe. And uh, this kind of an object could have been issued to someone like Columbus so he could go and make the purchases because it wouldn't do any good to have a letter of credit because the guy you're buying the stuff from can't read. Yeah. So that's my, my take on the Macintosh stone. It's strictly mine. It, this may have been nothing more than a magical talisman that a priest was carrying with him because of the, the, the white streak. Um, with these kinds of stones that have these white streaks in it, that was very much sought after if you were going to make an amulet or a magical talisman. You wanted that in it. Don't ask me why. I just know that that's... Uh, well, I was going to ask you, the, the, the Macintosh stone, does it, does, it, does it have, somebody said, I think I heard you say in another podcast that somebody held it and it has like energy to it or something. Yeah. And, and I'm not, uh, I'm no good at that. Uh, there have been, I have, I used to be up there quite a bit and then uh, people would come around and want to see this and I would be the one who would go and get it, show it to them. Uh, and yeah, there, there's a couple of people who came who are, who are in touch with vibrations or in touch with auras and things like that. One of the guys, um, uh, was, was he, he put it in his hand and he just handed it back right away. He said, There's too much energy in this. He said, this has got, so I get that. I get that from gems and stuff. Like when I, when I touch a piece of shungite, I can feel the energy in it. So I'd yeah, love so, to touch this thing. It would be amazing. Yeah. So, so if you come over, I'll, I'll make sure you get a chance to touch it. Uh, because it, it's, it's still there. And uh, the guy who owns this is a personal friend of mine and we'll, you know, we can always get it. I don't get those kinds of vibrations. I guess I'm on a different five vibration or a different wavelength, but I have had people say that. And this is everybody who's picked this up, who has that sensitivity has said, has commented about how ancient this thing is, how old it must be. Wow. So, uh, so that's the Macintosh stone. That's one of the pieces of evidence that if you interpret it the way I've interpreted it, that this was uh, a, a symbol of authority, uh, yeah. then the way that it would have gotten to the tip of the, I, I'm the only person who ever connected this to the copper trade. But if, if you're, if you've got ships going back and forth across this vast ocean, you're going to have managers going along. You're going to have supervisors going along to make sure you're only getting ripped off just so much. And they would have had to have symbols of authority other than troops with them. Uh, and so this is the kind of thing that they would have carried. This is amazing stuff. This was, this is such an interesting episode. Like, um, is there anything else we need to know about this before we finish up? Did we cover everything? Uh, well, actually, you know, we've, we've covered, we've covered, um, you know, most of it. I mean, there's a lot to this. I cut this way, way down, uh, for, you know, for this broadcast, this page is going to remain up on michiganbackrows.com for a while. And I'm going to be expanding this, uh, into a chapter of a new book because I left out a lot of details. For instance, uh, if you take, if you take the, uh, and I didn't even put the picture up here because I didn't know we would get to it. If you take the route that, uh, the canoes come across and from Isle Royal and they go down the West uh, side of the, the um, uh, Keweenaw Peninsula, they come to Antonagan and the Antonagan river. And if you go up the Antonagan river to a certain point, uh, you only have two portages and you're on the Mississippi. So all you'd have to do is portage your 
copper across and put it on rafts over there, and it can float down to the Gulf of Mexico. I'm that at one point, a couple of miles from the mouth of the river, are two gigantic pyramids that I think were constructed. And I've got a great picture of them from a mile away. And you can very clearly see that they stand out. The tops have been knocked off. And I think that those pyramids were built as places to build beacon fires for the people coming back down the river so they would know that they were getting close to the lake again. Wow, so, that's so and, amazing. And uh, it's, it's, you know, they're, I mean, I've, I've been to these. I've uh, been on a, uh, a trip to them. I've climbed up them. And the sides are very, very flat. And it, they certainly look like pyramids. And from the top of one, you can look down and you can see what clearly looks like a channel, a canal that was that was carved out to the river. And the river used to go right next to them. Now the river's about 600 yards away. So you can't see the pyramids from there. But at this point in time, this is amazing stuff. Like, I, so there's, a, so there's a, a lot more. And then I have a link here at the bottom of this page. says more Michigan oddities, which goes to a page on one of my websites where a lot of other Michigan oddities are detailed. But yeah, there's a lot more to uh, see if this comes up. Yeah. Um, there you are. Yeah. So all of these, uh, the gravity mystery, the Keweenaw wall fits into this. Uh, the Alpina discs uh, is another one. The burnt bluff pictographs is another one. All this is up in that part of Michigan. The McIntosh stone is detailed here. You just went on spirit houses. Do you have a lot of haunted places up there in Michigan? Well, uh, actually, in fact, the name of Inn, where the name of the name of Stone, the McIntosh Stone, is located, is haunted. I used to live there. I don't ever get haunts either. I don't get vibrations and I don't get haunts. But the spirit houses, this re, this refers to Native American burial houses. So this is the way that Native Americans buried their dead above ground. And so oh, there are still wow. some spirit houses up there. That's what that's about. This is uh, so cool. This is so interesting. Thank, thank you for doing this. I, 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 uh, I, I was, I was a little bit nervous about it because I wasn't, I wasn't familiar with the material. But I think this came out really good. Like I think it was a, a fun show. Yeah, I, yeah. I've had a great time doing it. I'm glad that we did it. Uh, there's more of this kind of stuff out there. So when you've got, you're looking for things, uh, get a hold of me or have Mark get a hold of me, and I've got other things that I can we could do that are, you know, not so much paranormal or UFO, but real mysteries that exist. Like the, have you ever done a segment on the uh, Newberry tablets and the Magor gods? No. What's that? Briefly uh, in 1867 or 1869, I can't remember the exact year, but uh, there was a huge uh, storm windstorm that went through the upper peninsula of Michigan and knocked down trees that were 150 years old and older. And in the rootstock of one of these trees were found three statues and a tablet with strange carvings on it. And the story of what that is, um, in fact, the, 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 the tablet, just to, to tweak your interest a little bit, I'll, I'll go into the statues at some other time because they're a different part of this. But the tablet was actually the carvings that are on it. It wasn't found out until the 1960s. The carvings that are on it are actually uh, Hittite Minoan carvings. Wow. And this tablet was used, uh, the way that it was used is you would put it, the, the shaman or the holy man would take this tablet and put it on the ground and you would have a question. Uh, you're going to get married. You want to know if you're going to have a fruitful marriage or you're going to go on a journey. You want to know if it's going to be a safe journey or any of those kinds of things. So you would go to the shaman or the holy man and ask him this. He would throw grain on this tablet on the ground and then record the symbols that were revealed by birds coming to eat 
the grave. And the sequence in which that happened would be the augury of your future of your question. That's now, this so tablet was found uh, in, in the roots of a tree 150 years old. The tablet and the statue still exist. And the tablet has been translated. So that's another uh, one of these things. You know, I don't ha I have a lot of interest in paranormal and UFOs, but part of what I go after more is these old stories that are being forgotten uh, that have real physical evidence that show that someone was here that we've completely forgotten about. I, I love that. It's like, you know, it's like, like forbidden knowledge or alternative ancient yeah, history, you yeah. call it, you know, I love stuff like that, you know, and I, I want to, I want to cover that next. I say we do a show on that. I, I can get a hold of you and uh, we, I'd love to do a show on that. You know, yeah, like, that's that a be very so interesting. interesting, very interesting subject. And, and we've got pictures of all this stuff and the history of it is very well documented. So it's not one of these things where people come to you and they say, Hey, Rob, uh, we found this copper plate with all these strange carvings on it, but it was lost a hundred years ago. Nobody knows where it is. We know where these are and they still exist and people can go and see them for themselves and try to puzzle out how in the world did these things get there and be buried and be found in a tree that's 150 years old after a windstorm. Wow. That's so amazing. It's, like, it's almost like they knew like they were leaving a piece of history there so people would eventually find it. Right. That, or, you know, or, well, do you know about the Kensington runestone? No. Okay. So briefly, the Kensington runestone is a, a stone that was found. A guy was plowing his field over in Minnesota. Uh, and he turned over the stone and he saw carvings on it and he cleaned it off. And what it is, is a stone that has runic writing on it. This is Viking type writing. And it relates that there are, these are 13 or 14 men. Uh, they left their other group. Uh, on an island uh, two, 10 days away, and they're looking for something. I can't remember if they're looking for water, looking for food, what they're looking for uh, to get them through the winter. And uh, they and they, they carved this, and they got apparently they got attacked, or the other people got attacked, and most of them got killed, and this stone records all that. And no one ever knew that it was there, and this farmer found it. And this is a well-known object that has been studied 15 ways to Sunday. And most people agree that it is actually authentic. And it's dated, I think it's dated, don't hold my feet to the fire. I think it's dated, there's a date on it. I believe it's 1352. Wow. Which is 150 years before Columbus got here. This is amazing stuff. And you wonder why this stuff isn't being talked about more like in a mainstream. It seems because it seems like all those people that would, uh, it's like uh, Dr. Greg Little says, like if you ever followed his work when he was uh, talking about when archaeologists were digging beneath the Clovis layer, they don't have anything to call that except they call it pre-Clovis. Yeah, like, they, they don't, don't have any acknowledge idea. it, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the uh, we can we can wrap the uh, uh, Kensington runestone in with the the Newberry tablet is what I call it. And you can you can go to my website and read about that. Uh, and I've got pictures of all these objects. I've gone and seen them and, and uh, have copies of the newspaper articles from the 1800s when these objects were discovered. So it's all very well documented that they are real. They weren't something that somebody just made up a couple of years ago. Yeah. Could we do another presentation where we have pictures and stuff like this? So I could, yeah, I can. Yeah, I'll do it just like, yeah, I'll do it just like this so that you can, because people, if people are following along and they want to see that they want to see the pictures. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of shows scheduled, but I'll 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 get I'll get with you as soon as this is over, and I'll figure out we'll, we'll figure out a day yeah, when to fig, do yeah, it. Yeah, figure out a time. You know, I'm I'm in a uh, I'm always uh, busy, but like Mark gave me a I think you guys gave me like six weeks notice. I was able to plan ahead, and and uh, that's that's fine. Yeah, we'll do that again like sometime like yeah. November probably or something. Maybe that's fine. Yeah, fine. Stop yeah. recording and uh, and and thank you so much for doing this.